14 minutes it is after 8 p.m. Yeah, if you just joined us, we had uh, that discussion uh, with uh, the uh, uh, folk uh, from uh, out at, uh, let me just get this organization right, Public-Private Transport Association and uh, the founder there, Batuka Mbelengwa, speaking to us about uh, the e-hailing space and uh, all of these issues, not just about Didi, uh, but I guess Didi happens to be the center of it because they are the new entrant into that particular market. Uh, you can send us your voice notes on 079-191-4270. Still want to hear your views on that particular matter. And uh, it might be that you drive for one or all of these platforms. So do share with us some of your own experiences as we try and uh, uncover and shine a spotlight on uh, some of the uh, challenges that obtain and also many of the exploitative practices uh, that uh, seemingly are part and parcel of the e-hailing platforms. You might also be a consumer in this space and uh, speak to us about, I guess, uh, how you feel you can add some pressure, uh, to place some pressure to uh, make sure that uh, much of what happens there is an alignment uh, with uh, yeah the progressive I guess uh, labor uh, uh, labor standards and uh, labor regulations uh, that uh, many have uh, spilt blood and uh, a considerable amount of sweat and uh, struggle for and uh, we we'll, yeah lest we forget those particular ones so send through those voice notes uh, we out uh, on our voice note line uh, on zero seven nine one nine one four two seven zero you can also reach us on our studio line at zero eight nine double one zero double three double seven. We now go into our Thought Leader Thursday segment and uh, my next guest, Dr. Zine Makubane, is an Associate Professor of Sociology in the Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences at uh, Boston College and somebody with uh, very, very strong roots here in South Africa and uh, we'll tell you a bit more about that on the other side. 16 minutes it is after 8pm. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. My Thought Leader on this Thursday is Dr. Zine Makubane, South African uh, who has lived uh, uh, here in South Africa as well and the United States, uh, has uh, taught sociology, has worked at the HSRC here uh, and uh, much of her work. Uh, focused on uh, Southern Africa, and uh, she's the author of the seminal work, Bringing the Empire Home, Imagining Race, Gender, and Class in Britain and Colonial South Africa, uh, which uh, looks, I guess, at the emergence of uh, race, gender, and class as conceptual entities, as sociological markers, and as ideological systems. And uh, she is based out at Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences at Boston College. Uh, Dr. Makubane, good evening and welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for coming through. Uh, Dr. Makubane, maybe just before we get, I guess, to a lot of your own theoretical work, um, just paint a picture for us of uh, who, you know, Zine is, uh, you know, the your own background, brief biographical sketch, uh, in a way that I guess explains to us and links us uh, to why many of the big themes of race, gender, class, coloniality, uh, and other uh, issues have loomed so large in your life and your intellectual work. Sure. Well, to try to keep it brief, um, my family is South African. Uh, my father, who was also a sociologist, Bernard Magobani, mm. um, taught at the University of Connecticut for most of my life. So I spent most of my life living in Connecticut. But because I had most of my family in South Africa, uh, my oldest sister moved back to South Africa when I was very young, and I would visit her all the time. So all throughout my life, my father, who was an ANC member, um, the... South African liberation struggle loomed very large in our home. Mm. At the same time, I was living in the United States of America, which, no surprise, is a very racist country in yeah. any way. Settler colony so as well. From early, from early on in my life, 
I was interested in racism as a transnational phenomena. Mm. I was also interested in the connections between the history in the not only the construction of race as an idea, mm. but also in the construction of imperialism and colonialism and capitalism as Social system. Mm, mm. Dr. Zina, I want us to pause there for a second and uh, we're going to take a quick spot break. But when we come back, I want us to first talk, I guess, about uh, just the history of uh, uh, sociology as a discipline uh, and I guess the, the role of, you know, some of the other themes that you've mentioned, colonialism, apartheid, you know, settler colonialism, and of course, uh, the issues of race in the U.S. and how those have also contributed to uh, the historic evolution of that field of inquiry. And they will also uh, get a sense, I guess, of uh, some of your own reflections uh, on uh, yeah, these issues in both of uh, your homes, that in the United States and uh, also here in South Africa. So we'll continue on that score after this. It's Thought Leader Thursday, and our Thought Leader on this Thursday is uh, Dr. Zine Makubane, Associate Professor of Sociology at uh, the Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences at Boston College. And, uh, uh, yeah, Dr. Makubane is our guest this evening. And, uh, uh, Dr. Makubane, before we went to the break, I guess you were talking about, uh, you know, the history of sociology and uh, uh, I guess also this idea of uh, the role of, you know, many colonized people of the world as subjects um, and uh, I guess in many instances also falling outside of the ambit of inquiry. Talk, talk to us about sort of not only your interest in, in that work but also how that has had some relevance uh, for your study of Southern Africa as well. Sure. Well, sociology is an interesting discipline in that you mm. have to think of sociology as a discipline that evolved out of uh, colonialism but also that colonials and modernity were very strongly coupled. Mm, mm. And I like that you, you mentioned that point because I guess that there's also a lot of, uh, you know, in recent times, uh, least of all here in South Africa, a lot of um, uh, epistemological questions that are being asked about, you know, the role of um, colonized peoples, Africans uh, in, in this particular case as, as, as subjects in the creation of knowledge, in the institutions uh, that allow for the, I guess, you know, creation of knowledge and its transfer from one generation to the next. Some of your thoughts on that, I guess, uh, and, and the links, as you say, the transatlantic links between some of what has happened here in South Africa and, of course, uh, the developments out in the United States. Sure. I mean, another part of the problem of book in um, 1898. So really, you know, uh, there's people like Anna Julius Hooper. On the, in South Africa, there were, it's its own indigenous tradition of, you know, creating knowledge, mm. sociological knowledge. So another thing that I wanted to change, um, both in my teaching and in my writing, was to actually document that there has always been this resistant tradition of thought that has uh, been anchored in both a critique of colonialism and imperialism and apartheid, but also an imagination of a world that could be different, both mm. epistemologically different but also different in its actual property relations. Mm. Who owned what? Who got what? Um, what was paid for what? Who had freedom? Mm. All of those questions are also at the center of and the sort of insurgent Africanist tradition in sure, sociology. Sure, sure. This issue of property relations you raise, I mean, uh, a lot of your work is also in the field of political economy, and I'm quite interested in, you know, uh, uh, when you reflect on 
you know, the uh, more contemporary uh, moments in, in post-colonial Africa or, or Southern Africa uh, for our purposes, for the purposes of our discussion here. Some of your thoughts on how those political economies have unfolded um, beyond just, I guess, the, the presence of the colonial power uh, in whatever varied forms that we have. I mean, you've also had, you know, some reflections on, I guess, you know, some of the uh, compromises that have been made here in South Africa, uh, which in, are in no way unique, I guess, to some of the compromises made by nationalist movements across the region. Yes, I mean, um, the traditions of anti-colonialism and anti-racism go very deep. However, in many ways, although those are two intertwined movements, they're not necessarily the same thing. Mm. And so what even scholars like Fanon wrote about, about the fact that a, a, a sort of making of a rainbow-colored elite, which can be a goal of anti-racism or anti-colonial mm. struggle, right? Even the first iterations of anti-colonial movements didn't necessarily, at the beginning, seek to overturn colonialism and its system of property relations. Mm. Rather, they sought to end the discrimination in access to power. It was only later on with the introduction of mass movements, a mass base, a connection to peasant movements, to worker movements, that really pushed and radicalized even anti-colonialism itself to also include a transformation in property, uh, the property regime. Mm. Um, and really, that is a, you know, it's, a, it's we're at such a crucial juncture um, in these types of questions. Uh, from the vocation where I sit in the United States of America, for example, you know, anti-racism is having a moment. Um, and corporations cannot get enough of it. You know, everyone mm. from Jamie Dimon to, you know, Coca-Cola, you know, touts their anti-racism. They don't particularly like worker movements. They don't like unions. They don't mm. like questions about the distribution of property itself. But they're very happy with a multiracial, uh, you know, sort of ruling regime. That doesn't really bother them. So these questions, you know, again, first brought forward by people like Du Bois, uh, Fanon, are very much still with us. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I like that, that that comment because I guess, you know, for us here in South Africa, there's often the, uh, you know, progressiveness or even, I guess, this um, subversive, um, especially in terms of property relations, the subversive bent that is often given, you know, to anti-racism struggles. There's always the sense that, uh, you know, an anti-racist struggle is by extension a progressive struggle, a pro-worker struggle and a struggle that, you know, is really about a contest over surplus value in the society and how that is created. But uh, we know, I guess, the the lived reality even here in South Africa hasn't been the case that you can have certain conservative strains even within an anti-racist movement uh, and and some of these contradictions are often brought up. And a lot of that has to do with, I guess, what the aspiration or, you know, um, tail end or, I guess, teleological end of of whatever struggle is intended to be. Uh, From where you're sitting now, I mean, do you get a sense that, I guess, in many ways, the anti-racism struggles in the U.S. have been emptied of whatever subversive power they might have had in relation to global capital? Yes, I mean, it was, uh, it's, been, it's a very interesting and strange time to be alive, um, really, and to witness, you know, what has happened in a place like the United States of America, where, to take just one example, um, in a country where you have like all over the world, a massive, massive public health crisis, Mm. right? And in the discourse about that public health crisis, they are pretty comfortable talking about what they call medical racism, which is maybe like 
individual doctors and the way in which, you know, well reported that mm. they underestimate uh, or they um, don't believe pain reports by black patients, that doctors also carry the discriminatory attitudes of the society. All of that, nothing to take away from those arguments. However, they stop short at talking about things like universal health care. And again, that's where you really see where the rubber meets mm. the road, mm. where, you know, movements towards what we call Medicare for all, socialized medicine, you know, run up against, and in fact, in some ways, were saved and redeemed by anti-racism. In the mm. sense that people were much more comfortable talking about, well, you know, Pfizer is doing all of these stuff, it's committed to anti-racism, or committed to diversifying its corporate boards, or, you know, it's committed that every patient should be heard equally. They were able to say those things, but they did not want it to be heard that perhaps medicine should be free. Mm. And that's in the middle of a public mm. health epidemic. And even the discussion of why COVID has hit persons of African descent in the United States disproportionately. You know, there's all sorts of strange things floated, everything from people's genetics. And then a quick mention of, oh, people of color happen more, are more concentrated as essential workers, as though being an essential worker or being poor, it's sort of natural that you should be more likely to just die of a deadly disease. That structural analysis of, what is the condition of these workers and how can we alleviate them? And who should be required to give up some of their profits to pay for it? It doesn't enter the conversation yeah, in the United yeah, States of yeah. America. I mean, it doesn't enter the conversation, yet, you know, in many ways we're seeing in, you know, African-American, Latino and other communities a resurgence of, uh, you know, organizing um, by workers' movements, trade unions. Um, just your, your sense of, of that moment. Um, does that in many ways, I guess, isolate a lot of, uh, you know, the capture of anti-racism and its sort of creation now essentially as an elite project in some spaces? Um, uh, or are we seeing, I guess, a bridge being created between these two movements uh, to create something from below? I mean, what you're actually seeing in the U.S. is um, uh, a fairly, to, to borrow South African phrase, a rainbow on both sides. So, for example, mm. we had uh, this big move to unionize uh, Amazon workers. And on both sides of that fight were, you know, workers of... Uh, white workers and black workers before and against that union. Mm. And the arguments that, again, were sort of deployed were interesting. It's, the lines are never so easily drawn, sure. except for an academic discourse. So in a place like the United States that has been hollowed out from its industrial base, mm. Amazon is sometimes the only job in town. And so the persons who are against both black and white the union were saying things like, well, it's the only work that it has. And, you know, $15 an hour is better than nothing. And others were saying, but look, literally, Amazon is working us to death. Mm. And those are the sorts of conversations that do not really make it into American mainstream media. They would rather have an easy story, all the blacks on one side, all the whites on the other, mm. or, you know, for unions were the anti-racists and against unions were the racists. It's not that simple. And the question of the power of a single corporation in American society, mm. running whole towns, you know, able to have outside influence in government, those sort of questions don't fit neatly into a sure. racist, anti-racist uh, conceptual architecture. Dr. Makubani, just, just as we wrap up, I, I certainly wish we had so much more time because there's so many things I want us to unpack. But one of the ones that I've, I've always found very incisive, um, you know, or I found incisive in your work, um, is your analysis of celebrity culture. 
Um, and uh, I guess, you know, uh, the least of all in, in one of the most, or maybe what might be seen as the home of consumerist, uh, uh, you know, capitalism uh, as we currently know it. Uh, but uh, really the location, I guess, of particular forms of cele- where celebrity meets philanthrocapitalism. Uh, and we see this now, even I guess in the in the vaccine response, this idea of you know charity rather than justice, uh, be it vaccine nationalism or what some people are calling vaccine apartheid. But I mean, early even you know as early as 2008, you were saying in the case of Oprah uh, and Bono that you know they were, I guess, really marshalling and and using the rhetoric that linked their own personal histories and experiences uh, to you know colonized or, or subject communities. And linking that as a, I guess, a reason for their philanthropy, but also as something that gave it legitimacy and credibility. Um, just in that body of ideas, um, I mean, do, do you still hold the same views and, and have those ideas certainly for you and in your work uh, advanced in any way? Yeah, I mean, the sort of celebritization of, you know, give everybody a car mm. or to come build schools, right? So even though individual celebrities are, I'm sure, very nice people, at least some of them, (laughs) it also distracts from a conversation about, well, the state should actually be there to rescue people. Mm. Not, you know, with our own wealth that we've created in that society, instead of one wealthy individual, again, giving them outside power to decide, I am going to bestow my gifts on you and not on you. So I think there's just a larger conversation about, in what type of world do people who have made their living, again, many of them very talented, playing basketball or singing songs or whatever mm. it is, how is it that they are suddenly giving such, you know, having such a hand in the provision of social goods that are human rights? You, do you think we've approached the same discussion around global inequality in the same way? I mean, I, you know, I remember a few years ago here in South Africa, there was a platform where two billionaires were speaking on a platform on you know, inequality and uh, you know, very little was said, I guess, about public provisioning and st- systems of provisioning. Um, you know, at a time when students in this country were fighting for free education, there's a struggle on for you know, comprehensive social security and national health insurance. Um, do we tend to celebritize and I guess you know, uh, make more apolitical the same struggle around this issue of global inequality? Yes, I definitely see that that is the case. I mean, um, that I would like to get mm. is that it's more about how it helps to structure our ideas about what is possible and what's not possible. You know, uh, what should we should expect and what we should, um, as citizens, mm. and what we should think of as favors begged from the wealthy. Dr. Zina Makubani? We're going to have to leave it there this evening. Thank you very much for being generous uh, with your time and, uh, uh, yeah, I guess uh, uh, giving us uh, some of your insights uh, over a many a decade of work that you've done. And, uh, yeah, I wish you all of the best and thank you very much once again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Zina Makubane, Associate Professor of Sociology in the Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences at Boston College. And uh, yeah, as I said, somebody with very deep roots uh, here in South Africa and uh, yeah, based out in the United States and uh, joining us as our thought leader on this Thursday.